0: Well, good morning, everyone. What a good day to be in the Lord's house. What a good time to be together. What a joy to be able to worship our great God this morning. I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. And as we come to the Lord's Word, uh, let us take a moment and go to him in prayer. Father God, we are so grateful this morning for your word. We are grateful that we are able to come together, that we are able to worship you. We're grateful that we are able to, to praise your name, that you give us the that grace to do that. That You grace us here with Your presence. We know that as we come together as the body of Christ, You are here with us in a unique way. That as we lift our voices up to us, You hear us. As we pray to You, You hear us and You answer us. And then You speak to us. You speak to us through Your Word. Your Word, as Hebrews 4 says, is alive and it's powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a discerner between the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. So this morning, may Your Word come to us like the surgeon's scalpel, And may it do a work in us, changing us and remaking us like our Lord Jesus. May, our, may we listen not only with ears, but may our hearts listen to your word and be receptive to your work in us. So to that end, we commit ourselves. We ask your grace both for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of us give a lot of attention to to making our homes, our houses, our apartments, uh, wherever it is we live, we give a lot of time and attention making them more beautiful, making them more functional, making them more comfortable. But the reality is that most of us invest far too little into improving our relationships, the relationships of those who live in our homes. That is really our study this month and into the first week of September. The book of Ephesians has much to say about relationships, much to say about families and marriage. And so people often turn to here to Ephesians chapter 5 and to the second half of this chapter and on into chapter 6 to see what the Word of God has to say here about Marriage and family, and indeed there is wonderful and important material here and important truths and principles for us to learn and to apply in our homes. We can build beautiful things, beautiful buildings, but if what is underneath those beautiful things is not solid, we can find ourselves in trouble. And, uh, you know, the Leaning Tower of Pizza was never designed to be leaning. It leaned because it was not built on a solid foundation. And it would have fallen over had they not gone in and stabilized it. And, uh, of course, by that time it was such a tourist attraction that they decided to keep it leaning. But it has actually a solid foundation, as I understand. is not supposed to fall over anytime soon. Ephesians chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5 speaks to relationships and speaks to relationships in general in the church, in general relationships with everyone. But if we skip past chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5, we skip past these instructions and this teaching about relationships in general and we moves to look specifically at what the Scripture here has to say about marriage and family, we miss the important foundational truths that are here. And so while there is more in chapter 4 and chapter 5 than just relationships, we have been looking at it last week and this through the lens of relationships Examining, as it were, the foundations of our relationships, because we need these foundations if we're going to build marriages and family and home, if we're going to build them well on a solid foundation. And so we've been taking time here to check the foundations. Last week was part one in chapter four, and we don't have time to go back and review all of that, so I will do something I rarely do, which I rarely say, you need to go, if you weren't here last week, you need to go to our church website, get online, and there you can listen to or watch that message. Or if you can't do that, we can make you a CD. If you can't do that or you don't like to, I can print you a copy of my notes and you can read, okay? I think the message is that important. Not because I think I'm that important as a speaker. Boy, you really got to listen to me or you're going to miss out. I just think this passage and these truths are so significant. And I've heard from a number of you this week how, wow, I really needed what we had last week. And so we're continuing this week, part two, examining the foundations of good relationships. The reality is we all have relationship problems from time to time, right? All of us do. And when we have relationship problems, they tend to make us unhappy, even miserable. That often makes us desperate enough to pray. And when we go to God in prayer over our relationship issues, our relationship problems, typically we pray asking God, our heart's desire is, God, will you come in and will you fix the problems and will you remove the conflicts primarily by changing other people so I can be happy? That's usually how we pray about relationships, because we know that God's great desire for you and me is that we be happy. At least, theologically, we know that's not true. But practically, we think that. At least if you're anything like me, I know God must want me happy. Well, reality check. I've looked. I can't find the Scripture that says God's primary desire for me is that I be happy. Yes, God does promise joy to those who love Him, those who follow Him. He promises to us as His children, as believers, blessings and joys forevermore. But He doesn't promise that life will always be good and that we will always be happy. Nor is that his purpose for us. Matter of fact, as I find in scripture, God's purpose for us is different. Scripture indicates that God is more interested when it comes to conflicts and problems in our relationships. He is more interested in working through the conflicts and working through the problems in our relationships to change us and to draw us closer to him. He wants to grow us and to mature us in Christ to be more holy, to be more like Jesus. That's what God wants in our relationships. We tend to measure relationships by how they make us feel and how they meet our needs. God measures the quality and the goodness of our relationships by our attitudes and our actions towards others. Are they godly or not? And that is the focus in these two chapters as God brings us to look at relationships here. Last week in chapter 4 we discovered 16 keys for good relationships. And um, we can't go over those again. We also noted that there in that chapter the apostle explained to us two reasons why our relationships are important. Why our relationships matter, because some of us may just not be relationally inclined, we just have a big deal. Our relationships are important. We saw last week in verse 1 of chapter 4 that we are to live up to our calling, both in terms of our identity that we have in Christ. In chapters 1 through 4 of Ephesians, God has given us an identity, a new identity in Christ. We're to live up to that. But more than that, we are to live up to our calling, as we saw, Our calling is the mission that Jesus left us with. It is to point people to Jesus Christ, to make disciples, followers of Christ. And as Ephesians chapter 4 made it clear, part of the work of that ministry that we have with our gifts and abilities as part of the church is to help others to grow, to mature in Christ. All of that depends on relationships and relationships matter because without good relationships we fail in the mission. Live up to your calling, he says. Secondly, we, we learned that relationships are important because we are to live out our faith. And we said, he really says here, don't be empty-headed. It is foolish. It is empty thinking to live like an unbeliever while you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That is empty thinking. It is wrong-headedness. So live like the follower of Jesus that you claim to be, live that out in your relationships. It matters. Now we come to our passage today, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. The third reason why our relationships matter is that we need to live out the family resemblance. We need to bear the resemblance of our Father. We are called here in verse 1, God's beloved children. Earlier in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, we find in those first few verses, verses 4 and 5, we learn that we were chosen by God and that we were He chose us to be, to be adopted as sons, to be brought into His family. And then we we even mentioned last week in chapter 3, verse 19, that God reminds us there that we are members of the household of God. And here again, He calls attention to the fact that we are beloved sons, beloved children of God. And so the, the punchline of this is that the nature of our relationships with other people reflects either positively or negatively Upon the God whose children we claim to be. Just like many of us had parents who would remind us as we go out the door, remember whose kid you are, remember whose name you wear. What you do wearing the name Spa reflects on the rest of us. So it is when we wear the name of God, when we wear the name of Christ, when we call ourselves Christians. The way that we relate to others, our relationships reflect either positively or negatively on God. And so our relationships matter. God is counting us to live as His children, children who don't embarrass the family, but rather reflect God positively to the world. And the next few verses give us three more characteristics that should be then be evident in our relationships. We learned 16 last week. Today, we don't have 16, but we got 9. we still got a lot, so we're flying through. We're just going to have to hit them quickly. The first of these characteristics is this. He says in verse 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are to love like Jesus in our relationships. Love like Jesus. Love should be what moves and what characterizes everything we do. Like Jesus, how does He love? It tells us right here. He gave Himself for us. Jesus died to rescue you and to rescue me. What does that mean in our relationships? It means something radical. It means that you and I are to give of ourselves for the good of others. We are, love is ready, love is willing, and love takes action to do what is good and what is best for the other person. Even though it may likely involve sacrificing. Sacrificing our time, sacrificing our energies, sacrificing our resources, sacrificing our agenda, sacrificing our preferences, sacrificing our desires. We are to live in love like Jesus. That is truly countercultural. He moves on. But sexual immorality and all impurity, and we read this whole passage earlier in our scripture reading, and I, I appreciate that, Rob, picking that passage today, because we don't have time to read every verse, but we're going to get as many as I can fit in, in the time this morning. Verses 3 and 4 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. In our relationships as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be sexually pure. Sexual impurity should be absolutely foreign to us as believers, as children of God, sexual immorality is destructive. If sexual immorality wasn't destructive, we wouldn't be seeing it on basically any time you turn on the news, read the news, there's some scandal, some scandal involving this person or that person, and it affects, and what we see is it infects many, many people. Our world says that what happens behind closed doors doesn't matter. Yes, it does. As God's children, we are to be sexually pure people. Now, we obviously live in a very highly sexualized culture. It saturates our world, whether, it, whether it's things we look at, things we read, things we listen to. It's all out there. And so while it might be easy to say we should be sexually pure, it can be hard to do. Can it not? It is a struggle for us to live sexually pure in a world that not only allows sexual immorality, but celebrates and idolizes it. Let me suggest three things that you and I need to do if we're going to live as sexually pure people in this culture First, we need to guard our hearts. It is the wellspring of life, Proverbs says. Be careful. We need to restrict what we watch, what we listen to, what we read, what we feed our minds upon. It matters because little by little it affects our heart, it affects our thinking, and it influences our behavior. Influencing us to buy the lie that sin is somehow normal and it's good and it's inconsequential. But they are lies. It matters what we feed ourselves upon. We cannot insulate and isolate ourselves from all the garbage that is out there. We are going to encounter it. We are going to hear it. We are going to see it. But we can avoid feeding upon it. I think we need to be careful. Secondly, don't toy with danger. In other words, don't deliberately put yourself into tempting situations. We all have, a, have inclinations to do that from time to time, to put ourselves in, in things where we're tempted to all kinds of sins, but especially sexual sins. Don't put ourselves in tempting situations and don't remain in any situation that becomes a temptation. We need to be like Joseph. You recall there in, in Genesis the story of Joseph with Potiphar's wife who just kept coming on to him and day after day after day after day. She was unrelenting and finally Joseph just, he just took and bolted out of the place. Because he refused to dishonor God. He ran. That's a biblical response and that's why 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22 says, so flee youthful passions. There's a time that's what you just have to do. Get out of there. What that means, by the way, is we cleanse ourselves of all kinds of situations. It's not just being in a room with people. It's online has been a huge problem in the last 30 years. a whole new way that we can be tempted, not only with visual and emotional pornography and there's fantasy and virtual relationships and reconnecting with old flames. All kinds of things that can be done with a, the touch of a mouse or the push of a button on our smartphone. It's rife with dangers. Be careful. And at times we need to throw the phone away or unplug the computer. Lastly, one more thing we need to do. This is for all of us who are married. We need to help our spouse. If you're married, you have a responsibility for your mate. That is part of your, of your loving care for them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-5 through five, says that we have a marital duty to our spouse, which we need to fulfill, a duty to not send them out into a world starving sexually or starving emotionally or starving relationally out into a world that is filled with temptations. We are to guard them and care for them. I'm sure there are many more things we could put, but there's just a few. How to help things we need to do as we seek to be sexually pure in our relationships. He moves on. There's another third way that being a child of God, being children of God, living out His resemblance in our lives shows up. And we see it as well in verse 4. He says, but instead be full of thanks or let there be thanksgiving." Because God is our father, we should be thankful and grateful people. An interesting thing is noting that this command is actually linked in as you look at the verse there, it's actually linked with the command to sexual purity, which is not usually where we we put thankfulness and tied to that. And what is the deal there? And the reason I think is because a root problem of sexual immorality is dissatisfaction it is as our text said there it is covetousness wanting something that you don't have it is a dissatisfaction with what you do have and the lure of sin is that sin will bring satisfaction but that's a lie it brings problems not satisfaction the antidote to this problem is being satisfied in Christ. Being thankful for what gifts you have. And trusting that as you obey Christ, He will ultimately provide what you desire and what you need. That's why it says, Instead instead of immorality, let there be thanksgiving. See, they're connected. Are you in an immoral relationship? End it. Are you caught in an unsatisfying relationship? Seek your fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Stop putting pressure on a person to do what they really can't do, ultimately. Seek your fulfillment in Christ rather than a person. And then live as a grateful person, this text calls us to do. Start counting your blessings rather than your problems. Start noticing all the gifts you have rather than the things you do not have. And then give thanks. Thank the people who... Be grateful and thank people who have given you the gifts you have rather than worrying about the things you don't have. And above all, give thanks to God who is, as James says, the giver of every good and perfect gift. When we praise God for the blessings we do have instead of complaining about the things we don't have, God will, I believe, start giving you joy and contentment right where you are. Be thankful. In verse 15, we find the fourth reason why our relationships are vitally important. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He has described here in that this is a time of there are unfruitful works of darkness and things going on all around us. The days around us are evil. You don't even have to be a Christian to look around the world and say, man, this place is messed up. I don't know about you, but I hear that in conversations everywhere. These are evil days. And he says here that we are to live wisely. And the reality is because days are short. Time is short. It's not your friend. The clock is ticking down. We have a little bit of time in this life, especially those of us who are older. And many of us are. If I live to be the age of my parents, two thirds of my life is over. If I live to be the average age, it's like nine tenths of my life is over. Time is short. Because God is our Father, it should change things. And it should cause us to focus on and to invest in what lasts forever, not what is here. And so we need to, these verses call us, to live for heaven. To not waste our lives. As believers, we know our life is brief. We also know that heaven is forever And Ephesians chapter 1 is not only informing us that we have been chosen by God and adopted into His family, it tells us that we have been blessed by God with blessings. With, as it says, I think it's verse 3 where it says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That every good thing that could be is ours in the heavenly realms. Blessings that last forever and ever and ever. Joy unspeakable. And this life is this long. Things that we cannot imagine await us. Eye has not seen, ears have not heard. The things that the Lord has prepared for those who love Him. And yet, we tend to focus on this little stuff. But this passage is calling us, and you see it, it relates to relationships. Because it's saying that if we'll grasp this reality, it will revolutionize our priorities and it will change our relationships when we stop sweating the small stuff. Having an eternal perspective will eliminate a lot, if not all, of the trivial things that we argue and spit and spat and fight about. And let's face it, we fight about who's going to get the bigger piece of cake. What? What does it matter? So you get a few less calories. It's actually a good thing. And heaven too. Put it in the perspective of eternity. We fight over trivial, unimportant things. He says, rather than being concerned with the unimportant things, we need to aim to make the most of every opportunity, it says here. Making the best use of the time. We need to use our time. We need to use our treasures. We need to use our energies and our talents. And we need to invest them. Serving God and serving people. And doing as Jesus called us to do in Matthew chapter 6. Remember he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in, in heaven, not on earth. In heaven where neither moth, moth corrupts and, and rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Oh my goodness, how we tend to focus on the stuff of earth and on the stuff that doesn't matter. And that's the root of so many of the problems. As James says, it's the root of so many of the quarrels that we have because we lust and we do not have. So living for heaven is an essential characteristic of good relationships. It changes our perspective and that changes our relationships. We move on, verse 17 Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, as people who are living wisely, as God's people, it's going to change our relationships. And we're going to desire God's will, not our own. Have you noticed that our natural inclinations are just usually wrong? And that, by the way, our natural inclinations, I I love the way Proverbs 14 says. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, I think, especially if we leave that man thinking in terms of man, in terms of gender. Learned from years ago, a friend of mine started calling it male pattern stupidity. I don't know what it is about us guys, but we really are stupid sometimes. It's male pattern stupidity. <laughs> I was out the other day, literally uh two weeks ago, we were down with the family at family place uh at the lake and and I, I'm on the dock and I hear this BAM and I go, What in the world happened? And I look over and I see this wave runner next to this eight foot in diameter pylon, yeah. Uh this holding up a bridge, you know. There's they come in pairs, and every once in a while Somebody comes along and thinks, ooh, here's a bunch of pylons all lined up. I can just shoot down the middle of these things. This is going to be fun. Every time, guess who they are, men or women? (laughs) Women don't do that. There's a way that seems right to a man. In in the end, it's the way of death. (laughs) Now, women, you have your own things. (laughs) All right. We all have our natural inclinations that are wrong. And we see it in children. If you're a mom and dad, you get it in your kids because you look at your kids and they're stupid. They're always trying to kill themselves. <laughs> what? And our whole job as parents is to try to, to instill in our children some common sense so they don't kill themselves. And then we come to God and God says, do this. And we go, no. Because we think we know something and it's not insignificant that all through Scripture we are called children. Because we have a finite perspective and we don't get it. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Not just understand it, desire it. It is essential to have good relationships because what God calls us to do in relationships... Oh, it very often makes no sense to us, and we'll get to some things. When we get over to husbands and wives. You know. go, <laughs> don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. We could have a lot more fun with that, though. But we we just got to move on. Next one, verse eighteen, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. I put here, be sober. Drunkenness, he says, is debauchery. Whoo! Oh. it's debauchery. What's debauchery? I don't know. So this week as I was studying, I go, you know, I really don't know what debauchery is. I have in my mind what debauchery is. It's bad. <laughs> Not really sure, but it's bad. So I look it up. It's dissipation. Whoo. Oh. that doesn't help. What is dissipation? Imagine this is a cup full of gold dust. Now, it's actually water. But what if I take this water (laughs) and I (laughs) trip? Okay. It is gold dust. In the cup, there's, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gold dust there. Out there, it dissipates. It is dissipation. It becomes worthless. It's gone. It is a waste. That's what dissipation means. That's what debauchery means. It's a waste. Drunkenness is a wasteful destroyer. People waste their lives. They waste their family. They waste their jobs. They waste their resources in drunkenness, squandering what is valuable. That's what the word means, debauchery. The Bible doesn't forbid alcohol. The Bible doesn't require you to choose, as my wife and I have done, that alcohol isn't a part of our life, not a part of our home. It doesn't require you to do that. That's something we chose to do. This passage does, however, plainly condemn drunkenness and self-indulgence. The Bible also gives many warnings about alcohol. and, And for good reasons alcohol and other drugs. By the way, the Bible doesn't forbid them, and I don't forbid them either. There is a place, by the way, and I am very, very thankful for drugs. I love drugs when I go to the dentist. I love drugs when I have surgery. Alright? There is a place for these things. The problem isn't there Their existence, the problem is our use or misuse of them. But the Bible says that, well, let me move on one more thing before I go there. Alcohol and drugs are a major contributor to ruined families. Most domestic violence is tied to drugs and alcohol. Most car accidents are tied to alcohol and drugs. Many regrettable decisions, foolish actions, and hurtful words are tied to alcohol and drugs. And so the Bible says, Proverbs chapter 23, do not look at wine when it's red or when it sparkles in the cup in the commercial on TV. And when it goes down smoothly, because in the end it... Bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. All that to say this, applying it to our relationships, say this. If you don't live alcohol free, then use it judiciously and use it sparingly. It comes with a warning. Actually, lots of them in Scripture. If you need a list, come see me. Move on. Continuing in verse 18, it says, but be filled with the Spirit. The next characteristic here is be filled with the Spirit. What does this mean, filled with the Spirit? Well, notice again, this is connected and in contrast with being drunk. In other words, instead of being under the influence of alcohol or some substance, we are to be under the influence, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Alcohol influences, drugs influence and move people, control people to do stupid things sometimes. And we should be under the influence of God's Spirit to do good things. As we've been going through the list last week and going through the list this week, we look at a lot of these things and say, those are really hard to do. It is really hard to love like Jesus. To give up my desires and give up my things for you. That's hard. It is hard to, you know... Any of these things, I don't. I just stop right there. It's hard to do them. What do we need? We need help. We need to have the Holy Spirit come alongside us and be under His influence, under His control, having Him help us. So as we recognize our need to put these truths in, into practice, we also recognize that we fall short. We need God's help, and we need to be praying and asking God, "Help me to change this. Help me to do that." And we need to submit ourselves to His will, Lean on His power. Two more as we finish up. It goes on in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. And again, there's a lot here, and it's talking about a lot of different things. But putting this into the context of relationships, we need to be... Busy and involved in building others spiritually. That goes back to our mission in making disciples. The purpose of these songs here in context is to teach and to encourage others, to equip them and worship together with them. And as we noted, that's our mission. I can't help but think that if my focus and if your focus in every relationship we have here with others in church, with our neighbor, with our friends, with our children, with our spouse, if the focus of our relationship is how can I help you grow closer and deeper in Jesus. If that was our thinking, it would change the stuff that comes out of our mouth. It would change the attitudes we have. It would drastically change things if that's our focus. It would change our priorities. And in so doing, I think it would likely solve 80% of our relationship issues before they ever get started. By the way, the, the one another aspect of this command reminds me of the importance of us being strongly connected in the body of Christ. And by that, I'm talking specifically in a local assembly, in the local church. We need one another to be encouraging one another and and equipping one another and helping one another to put these all of these relationship principles into practice in our relationships. I need you to come along and say, hey, how you doing, Pastor Keith? <laughs> you preach the sermon about all these things. How are you doing in it? Well, I kicked the cat today. <laughs> yeah. I need that. Hey, I'm praying for you. And you need that and little words of encouragement so we can be the husbands and wives and children and parents and friends that we need to be so we can build other spirits. One last one. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Put the other person first. Defer to them. Don't push to get your way. Don't push to... Get your agenda. Don't push to get your desires. Be willing to defer to others, to submit to them. That sounds an awful lot like the number one characteristic last week. The number one thing on the list was humility. Be humble. Be humble, which we looked at first at Philippians chapter 2, which means considering others better than yourselves. Sounds an awful lot like number one this week, which is love like Jesus which is putting others first, sacrificing yourself for them. Interesting. Humility, love, submission, they sound an awful lot alike because they are they're distinct but they overlap. But the concept in all three of those is the central core concept that's necessary for you and I to treat others as they, we ought to treat them, for us to have good relationships. It is all about putting others first in so doing walking in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus because even it says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many wow you take these nine you put them with the 16 from last week it's overwhelming what are we to do with all this stuff Well, first of all, I'm going to suggest a couple of things. First of all, a little handy pamphlet. I took all the points from last week and this week, put them all together in one spot for you. Actually, I did it for me because I'm a simple brain. I need things lined out kind of simply. This is God's truth here. This is my summation, which isn't God's truth, but I try to be faithful. What I did this for was to try to help me and hopefully help you to take those truths, put them here so I can see, what do I need to be working on? I encourage you on your way out today, grab one of these. Number one, take a flyer. Number two, assess. Honestly, look at these things. If you didn't didn't hear last week's message, go, you need to listen to some of those. Honestly, assess. How am I doing in these? And as we said last week, Own your sin. It's not, it's just, I'm born this way. It's not my daddy's fault. If you're doing these things that God says don't do, if you're not doing the things God does say to do, it is called sin. Own it. Don't make excuses. God, this is sin. Then what do you do? What does the Bible tell us to do with our sin? Confess. Go to God and say, God, here I am again. Confess our sin. And say, God, I want to change. I want to change. I want to be my, more like Jesus. We need to co- sometimes confess to some others. Maybe it's your wife, your husband, your kids, your dog, your cat, whatever. No, I'm good the people we need to talk to. Then, choose. We can't work on 25 things at once. I don't think any of us can do that. I can only handle one or two or three at a time. Choose one or two or three. How do you know which one or two or three to choose? Well, I suggest earlier maybe you go ask your wife. No. <laughs> That's way too radical. Just take the one you think your wife or your husband or your kids or your neighbor or your cat that they would choose and say you need to work on. Choose one or two or three. Say, these are the ones I'm going to focus on right now. And pray. Lord help me. I need help. Pray daily. Then read and memorize. I'm going to say read a bunch till it becomes you you know it backwards and forwards. Memorize what the scripture says here. That helps cuz God brings it to mind when you need it. And then you start to just work at it. Put it in practice. Is that simple? We need to change. Father, this is convicting stuff, but this is important stuff because relationships matter. We've seen four big reasons in this passage why relationships matter, and they're not the reasons we ever thought. The reasons we focus on why relationships are important, our relationships need fixing, is because we think we need our needs met and we want people to change because they're not treating us right. But what you call us to focus on is us. And our relationships with others and how we treat them, and He calls us to be godly. And Lord, we need help. So I pray this morning that, first of all, not a person here, not a person watching at home, is. I pray that there's not a one who doesn't know you as Savior, that they haven't heard that you love them, you sent Jesus to die for them, and that they can be saved by putting their faith and trust in Christ. I pray that everyone has begun a relationship with You. And then, Father, that none of us will stop there, but we'll desire to live godly in our relationships and to see You change these very things in us. And God, by Your grace, may You do it. Because we need it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.